Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Rebecca Gladding, author of the book, You Are Not Your Brain, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and Taking Control of Your Life, co-written with Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Dr. Gladding served as a clinical instructor and attending psychiatrist at UCLA and was featured in A&E's critically acclaimed series, Obsessed. She is founder and medical director of Mindfulness Wellness Maui. She is an expert in anxiety, depression, mindfulness, and the four steps. Dr. Gladding is here with us today to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD, and her work in treating the disorder through methods she has developed and are highlighted in You Are Not Your Brain. Becky, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been really excited to have you on and talk about this topic of OCD and some of the uh, techniques that you've developed in your book for treating OCD. And I've really been thinking about this topic quite a bit recently, just with the pandemic and over the last year, I've seen a real increase in anxiety related problems and people coming in talking about anxiety. And so I think it's really timely. And just off the bat, what's your been experience like with uh, your patient population during this whole pandemic? pretty much the same thing. I mean, what I've seen is that people don't have access to their normal coping skills. And as they don't have those, their anxiety, their stress, depression, all of those symptoms have increased. And so it's been real challenging for a fair number of my patients for that reason. You know, I don't know about you, but one of the first things I was thinking about when the pandemic started, just specifically about OCD is like, oh no, these, these poor folks that have contamination obsessions, yeah. what's it going to be like for them uh, with the pandemic and with the virus and all of that? Yeah. And, and of course, for, for folks with contamination fears, it, it's been very challenging for them. I have had folks who didn't leave their house for three, six months at a mm. time. You know, they might have food delivered in or someone else might bring it in for them, but um, their OCD got so bad that they literally couldn't leave the home. On the flip side, other folks have enjoyed, folks with OCD have enjoyed the social distancing <laughs> um, and and some of the kind of social conventions we're living in right now because it, uh it uh, just makes them feel a little bit uh, safer when they do go out. But I've, I've kind of seen both sides of that, depending on what the OCD kind of content is and um, how people approach it and, and deal with it. Right. Me too. And I think for some people, it's sort of nice because it's like a socially sanctioned means of avoidance, right? Which is exactly right. what people with anxiety disorders usually like to do. Right. Well, we're going to talk a bit more about OCD and the symptoms of OCD in a bit. First off, though, I would like to learn a little bit more about you and your journey as a medical doctor and a psychiatrist and your interest in this subject matter. So could we take a little bit of time talking about that? Sure, of course. Go ahead and start where you'd like to start on that journey. Well, I mean, I I think, you know, 
we all kind of have the, uh, the reason we go to med school is we want to help people and we love science and, and all of that. But what I can tell you is I was in my uh, third year of medical school at San Francisco General, and I saw how uh, I was on a consult liaison service. So basically you go in as a psychiatrist onto the medical and surgical wards. And I went in and I saw how people's um, medical conditions, like say an infection could cause psychiatric problems or vice versa. Someone's anxiety or depression could make their physical symptoms so much worse. And so that was what really drew me to psychiatry and, um, kind of got me started down the path. And prior to going to med school, I had worked with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a psychiatrist who wrote the book Brain Lock, which is one of the the well-known books on OCD, Mm -hmm. where he developed this four-step technique that's mindfulness-based to help people overcome their OCD thoughts and uh, behaviors. So I go off to med school. I really love psychiatry. I come back. I do my residency at UCLA. And one night at, you know, 10, 1030 at night, I run into Dr. Schwartz in the halls of the, uh, the psych building. And he just kind of looks at me and says, hey, you know, we should uh, we should start um, working together again. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I said, well, I'm a second year. I'm really busy right now. But when I get to third year, I would love, I've got more time. I would love to, to kind of chat with you. Um, and so we really kind of dug in. Um, he's had an education group from at UCLA for 20 plus years. So wow. I, you know, I had gone to it when I was pre-med um, to learn, but then I went, you know, as a facilitator now um, and we worked together very closely. We, we talked about all the different kind of aspects, not just, I mean, OCD, but then also just anxiety, depression, habits you want to change, how it all kinds of runs through the same pathways in the brain, areas of the brain, and, and how his four-step method could really um, be applied kind of globally and, and broadly. That has really been my passion is mm-hmm. getting people to the point where they can see a different perspective or even understand that a different perspective exists and then what to do with it once you get there. And OCD is just a really helpful condition to work with because of the ego dystonic nature of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for people, rather than it feeling like OCD is part of them, they really know something's off. And it's that knowing that something's off, which we call ego dystonic, is what is really a good ally when we're trying to get people to fight against the OCD. Mm-hmm. You know, for a variety of different reasons, my love of mindfulness, my interest in minimizing medication as much as possible, seeing the power of the brain, uh, the mind over the brain, um, all of that has kind of got me to where I am now. I see. And so when you say ego dystonic, just to back up to that, yeah, uh, I, I'm assuming that means the people don't like having the OCD. It doesn't feel good to them. Right. So it's, it's um, ego meaning, you know, kind of part of self or conception of self and dystonic meaning foreign, you know, they call it ego alien. It's it, the idea being, you know, it's not part of you, right? but it's so strong that you can't ignore it. 
that that's essentially what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I do have patients sometimes that come and say like, nobody likes having the OCD, but you hear sometimes people say like, the OCD helps me function well. Like I have a lot of medical people who have OCD and they like it because they're double and triple and quadruple checking their orders and their progress notes. And for some of them, it's kind of scary, the idea of giving up their OCD. Yeah, a lot of people say that, but it's actually uh, not true. So Mm -hmm. we had a painter in the group probably back in 99 or something. And this painter was convinced that the OCD is what made him a good painter. Mm -hmm. And we just kept talking to him and saying, like, who you are as a painter and your capacity is there no matter what. All the OCD is doing is slowing you down and causing you to not create as many paintings or be more creative in other ways. And so when I hear people say like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm so detail oriented and it's amazing. This OCD helps me. It, it, there's an opportunity cost and, and mm-hmm. you have to get people to understand and have the confidence that they're going to be really great without the OCD and that all it's doing is kind of slowing them down in some way. And I take it the proof is in the pudding. I'm, I'm imagining you don't have a whole lot of patients who've improved with their OCD and say, I'm not doing as well with the work that I like to do because of that. Right, right. They yeah. say, wow, I have more time. I'm not stressed out. It's yeah, <laughs> but it's it's a leap of faith to start, you know, working on it and making those changes. It sure is. Well, uh, we're going to get into talking more about the treatment of the OCD and especially talking about your book, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, You Are Not Your Brain. But let's do a bit more of a dive into OCD itself, just so our listeners understand what OCD is and how we can tell the symptoms and manifestations of OCD. So we know a bit more about what we're talking about. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit more of a description about OCD. What does that look like clinically? OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessive is the thoughts the feelings, the urges uh, to do something that pops into your brain. Once the obsession hits, people get anxious. Mm. And there's this cycle that we talk about. So just imagine an obsession and then a spike in anxiety. And unfortunately, what happens is people, the brain learns that if you then do something, a compulsion to deal with the obsession, the anxiety goes down. Mm. And so you get in this loop where you get thought, urge, feeling, right? Obsession, anxiety goes up. I do something and then my anxiety goes down. So the brain says, oh, okay, this is what we do. This is the pattern. We're going to create this habit. And the problem is with the the way the brain is, the thoughts, the obsessions are going to keep popping up. Mm -hmm. And so all you're doing is you're feeding that dragon, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, a a classic example would be a contamination obsession. I touched this public door. And so that would be, so the obsession would be, I've touched the door and now something bad is going to happen. And that something bad is usually something kind of out of um, the scope of what would be reasonable. Pretty irrational. Yeah. And this is how it becomes ego- dystonic. So, so you have this thought, oh, I've touched this thing. It's dirty. And now I'm, I'm going to bring it home and I'm going to 
give it to my partner and then that person's going to end up in the hospital and they may die. Like, and again, that's an extreme example, but that's kind of the pattern. So you have Mm -hmm. this obsession, something bad's going to happen, but the ego dystonic part of that is that, you know, 99.999% that nothing bad is going to happen. But the feeling, the anxiety, the distress is so terrible that it it paralyzes you. Mm -hmm. So then you do a compulsion. You go wash your hands or you get your Purell or, or whatever it is. And you do that. And then the anxiety comes down. And like I said, then that teaches the brain when we have this fear, we do this behavior and we're okay. Mm -hmm. And over time, it happens more and more and more because what we focus our attention on, we teach the brain is important and it just gets stronger and stronger. And then you have to wash 20 times or Mm -hmm. 40 times or, or whatever it might be. So that's kind of an overview just of what OCD is. Yeah. So a person has an obsessive thought, they do a compensatory compulsive behavior that relieves the anxiety they're feeling from that. And then it reinforces it to do it again and again. Correct. Yeah? Yep. Right. You, you mentioned contamination. I know that's a big one. And we started with that about COVID. Right. What other kinds of obsessive thoughts do you typically see? What are common ones? Uh, well, it really depends. I mean, a lot of perfectionism, this isn't like in the book, so to speak, um, but yeah. uh, a lot of perfectionism ends up being OCD. I, that's probably what I see the most, um, though it's not kind of characterized that way. You know, there's scrupulosity, like mm. right, wrong, things like that. Um, Contamination is really big. I mean, yeah. it can be battery acid. It can be all different kinds of things. Um, well, speaking of the scrupulosity, that's kind of an interesting one. Why is it that you think that there are so many people who focus on scrupulosity as right and wrong, and often it's a religious or moral mm-hmm. framework that they're coming with? I've always found that kind of fascinating, uh, that that's such a common thing. Yeah, um, I, I think it's partly without getting like <laughs> too in the weeds of uh, right. punit- punitive superego and this and that. I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with people being in a fearful state, right? I mean, OCD is all about something bad is going to happen. So, you know, we have these rules and we have consequences for rules. And especially within a lot of religious organized religious structures. I'm not talking about spirituality. I'm not talking about pure connection to God or anything like that, but within institutions, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they're societal, uh, whatever they are, there are rules and then there are bad things that are going to happen if you break those rules. So I think that a lot of it comes from that. And then also these expectations, right? Again, it goes back to the perfectionism, the expectation that you've got to do everything right, or this stuff's going to get taken away from you. So I I think a lot of it comes from that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that you have organized structures of rules and regulations. And for somebody who's predisposed to have OCD, that it seems like it it could manifest in that in that manner. Right. Uh, Also, I know that I guess this is maybe more of a compulsive behavior, but people sort of 
do these repetitive kinds of things, number counting, needing even or odd numbers, uh, Mm -hmm. touching things symmetrically, sort of uh, behaviors that don't seem to really serve any kind of functional purpose. Right. How do you kind of characterize those kinds of behaviors? Well, I mean, there's still there's still an obsession that's kicking it off, right? Mm-hmm. So what the feared consequence is, I, I don't know. Depends on the person. But the compulsion is there. The person has somehow paired doing this counting as being protective, being a way to drop that anxiety. So most of the time I try to, as much as I can figure out what the obsession is or what the feared Mm. consequence is, but the compulsion is, is the end result of whatever is um, uh, really causing the fear. Got it. So somebody has an obsessive thought about something bad that's going to happen, maybe because of something they did or some situation going on for them. Mm -hmm. And then by counting to 10 or touching things three times or something, that's the compensatory behavior that needs to happen to undo the bad consequences of the obsessive thought that somehow there's been a pair, a pair, an association made in the person's mind about that. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And and that undoing, you know, that's important that you say that it's, it's kind of like the, the uh, obsessions where people are needing to ask, tell, or confess. Mm Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's another one where people are, you know, <laughs> unfortunately, they end up like feeling like they have to anything they've done yeah. or anything they've said, they have to tell someone about it. And really the the compulsion or the, the thing that decreases the anxiety is getting that other person to provide the reassurance. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's OK. You know, I, I hear you. It's whatever. But so there's, there's different ways the OCD can really kind of show up. And sometimes it's hard to pick out the obsession, but usually it's, it's relatively easy to find the compulsion. Sure. And speaking about the, the needing to ask, tell, or confess, I imagine that must drive some family members crazy when that's going on. (laughs) Is is there a strain that sometimes happens in families because of that? Because that that could be pretty, um, pretty hard on family members, always having the other person asking and confessing or whatnot. Right. Yeah. It, it can be exhausting if, especially if it's, you know, unchecked. I mean, someone could be asking for reassurance every couple of minutes on certain things until, I mean, that could go on for a half hour, it could go on for an hour. There could be a break for two hours. It could be nonstop. I mean, it can be, it can be really debilitating. Um, depending on on what it is and and how long it goes on for. Right, got it. You know, these days people throw around psychiatric and mental health terms very casually. Yeah. And how would somebody know if they really truly had a clinical obsessive compulsive disorder versus, oh, you're just being obsessive about this or I'm obsessing, I shouldn't be obsessing so much. Like where would you draw the line where somebody might really need to get some help or examine it? Well, I mean, the classical definition is obsessions or compulsions taking more than an hour out of your day. But clinically, I think what's most helpful is to look at your functioning. And if it's something that you can 
you know, you have a thought or you have a fear and you look at it and go like, yeah, okay, that makes me a little nervous, but I can go on with my day. I'm doing fine. Uh, that's not OCD. Mm-hmm. It, it may be rumination, you know, just repetitively thinking about something, or it may be anxiety, but it's not to the point that it's going to um, impair your ability to do what you need to do. Whereas if, if it's like a dog with a bone and you just cannot, no matter what you do, let it go, it's consuming you, it's, your day is getting disrupted by it, then you really want to look at it. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're washing your hands so much that they're getting raw or right. with the family members, they say, you have, you have told me this 20 times today, I can't keep doing this with you. Or you spend two or three hours before you can leave the house because you have to go check the stove and check the lock and check this and check that and then get near the door and have to repeat and repeat and repeat. And it takes hours for you to get out of the house. You know, those are the kinds of things that, that you want to be looking at more closely. Mm-hmm. So there's just an obvious disruption in the daily routine and the lifestyle of the person or the impact it has on the people around them. Yeah. As long as the person can see it, sometimes the mm-hmm. OCD is so bad that it feels kind of real then it's a little more challenging. But generally, when people are able to acknowledge like, wow, I'm spending a lot of time counting diagonal tiles in this room, then it becomes uh, easy. But they're, the hardest one, honestly, is I think mental compulsions. Um, you'll see in the literature that it's called, they call it pure obsessional or pure O, but I don't hmm. actually agree with that. Mm-hmm but you'll hear it all the time that people are just purely obsessional. But what really is happening is that there is an obsession. And then everything after that is a mental compulsion. What if that, how about this? If I did it this way instead, that's all compulsion. Mm -hmm. And so I think if anything gets missed, it's that. That may not drive someone to get help as quickly because they think they're just going through a thought process. But again, if it's taking them a couple hours out of their day because they're running these what-if scenarios, uh, it definitely is something to, to look at. That's very interesting. And that makes perfect sense that the thought itself can be the compulsive behavior if it's satisfying the need of the obsessive thought to figure something right. out, right? Exactly. And yeah. yeah, and you see, and again, that more with the perfectionistic kind of thinking, you see a lot of it. So Becky, in your writing, you spend some time talking a bit about the pathophysiology of OCD. And I don't know that we need to get too technical here, but I'd just be curious to hear a little bit about your thoughts about how much of OCD is really a brain disorder in the physiological sense versus a a thought disorder that can't be observed in any kind of imaging or whatnot. You know, with the brain, what's really interesting, I'm, I'm just going to describe a couple of different brain structures and then explain how it all kind of fits together. So we have the um, executive part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, um, and there's different parts of it, and, and we won't go into a lot of detail, but it's the part of the brain that really kind of analyzes things and says, oh, is this really something to be afraid of or is it not? Connected to that executive center, is what we we call in the book the uh-oh center. Um, <laughs> it's it's the amygdala and a, a bunch of other structures mm-hmm. um, that kind of fit together. And so 
in short, when OCD hits, that uh-oh center, that amygdala, that fear center goes wild. And that's what's so hard to, um, once it gets going, it's really, really hard to see clearly, mm-hmm. right? What's happening? Is this OCD? Is this real? All it a is part of the just, brain sort of taking over, right? Yeah. And they call it the reptilian part of the brain. I mean, it's just, it, it's meant for you to understand that it, it is fight or flight. It is very fast acting. And it's not really doing anything other than keeping you alive, right? It is identifying threat and, and sounding the alarm, mm-hmm. uh, which is great when there's a tiger coming at you. But when it's an OCD thought, very unhelpful. Mm-hmm. And so the way to deal with that is that that executive part of the brain through a, other brain areas has the ability to put the brakes on the fear center. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you have to be able to get to the point that you activate that executive thinking part of your brain to turn things around. So kind of in summary, OCD is the fear center gone wild. The treatment, the cure is getting that executive center online. Mm -hmm. So so think of that. So then the other thing I want to describe is how habits are formed Mm -hmm. because it's critical since OCD is repetitive habit-based behavior. And it's kind of the same thing. But if you think about when you first learned how to ride a bike, right, you had to think about everything, right? Sure. Where do I put my foot? Where do I put my butt on the seat? How do I put my hands on the handlebars? Exactly. So, so that takes a lot of brain power and it's taking up that executive part of the brain, that thinking strategizing part of the brain. Once you get pretty proficient and you can just hop on the bike, the brain sends all of those instructions down to a part of a different part of the brain called the basal ganglia. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the habit center of the brain. So you don't have to waste your precious executive brain prefrontal cortex on bike riding or driving a car or anything else. It, it just gets sent to the basal ganglia, the habit center of the brain, and that takes care of it. Interesting. So it's sort of like the brain's subroutine center. Exactly. Perfect way to describe it. Yes. So again, with OCD, if you do the same habit over and over and over and over, when the amygdala hits and fires, it goes straight into the basal ganglia and the habit happens, right? It just, the whole thing becomes boom, 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 automatic. And so that's how OCD gets more entrenched. Mm-hmm. And stronger is because, like we were talking before, you're now pairing, you're coupling the fear center, the amygdala, with the habit center. Okay. Got it. So that's kind of the biology of it. And you can see parts of this when you do some imaging as well. But I know that's a real long winded answer to how this is brain based. But oh, that's, that's a great answer. So I'm guessing that when you're imaging people with OCD, you're seeing some differences in the way, I don't know, the neurons are firing, the chemicals are flowing. Um, there'd be some differences in, in brains if you were to look at that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, a lot of this was done uh, many, many years ago with scanning electron, uh, PET scans, things like mm-hmm, that by Dr. Mm-hmm. Schwartz. But basically it shows over time that hyperactive areas of the brain 
become less active with treatment. You can see changes in the brain, either in glucose activity, which is a, a proxy for brain activity, or potentially through structural changes, though the, the structural changes on MRI are challenging to see with, with a couple of exceptions. So in the book, we talk about some work that Matt Lieberman did at UCLA, where he showed pictures he put people in scanners and he showed them either pictures of people's faces or mm-hmm. pictures of, you know, shapes or words. Uh, and, and he gave them different tasks. And with various tasks, what he would say is like, so there'd be a picture of a woman and a man, and you would have to decide which one was Helen, just in your head, mm-hmm. or which two of these shapes are the same or, or whatever. But what he found is when you had to pair, when you had to label, right, what emotion you were seeing, the act of labeling the emotion dropped the activity of the amygdala by a a significant amount. You know, I can explain this and how it fits with what we've done over time. It's really fascinating. Yeah. But just the act of labeling something, putting a name to something dropped the amygdala. And and it's probably related to what's happening in the lateral prefrontal and the medial prefrontal cortex on the way down, but you can actually see that on an MRI. That's really fascinating. So from a psychotherapist's perspective, that's part of what we do is we try to help people understand the emotions that they're having. And cognitive behavioral therapists are trying to attach thoughts to the emotions and the better yeah. people are able to understand those, the more control they feel that they have over them and able to manage them. So I wonder if on a physiological standpoint that that study was sort of showing that kind of a phenomenon. Yeah. And, and, and there are other things, other studies you compare it with and, and see a lot of very powerful effects, mm-hmm. but yeah, mindfulness putting, uh, you know, awareness, attaching some kind of name or label to something without that awareness, you can't do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it also drops the fear centers reaction level is, is just amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. What a, what an amazing study. Yeah. So Becky, let's talk a little bit about your work with your book. You are not your brain. I'd like to hear a little bit about the methods that you developed. I'm assuming it's not just OCD, it's other anxiety disorders and other types of things that people have problems with that this could be effective for. But what do you mean by that? You are not your brain. And tell us a little bit about how this book works. Okay. So you are not your brain is basically just trying to get you to understand that just because you have a thought, a feeling experience, it, it doesn't define you. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people will come to us and say, I am an OCD or, or I've, you know, I'm a bipolar person. And we try to say like, no, you're, you're a human in this world and you're dealing with OCD. Mm-hmm. Right. So, cause what happens is there's just such a fusion between like, we just literally believe that everything we think and everything we feel must be true. And so we use brain as opposed to mind, right? Mm -hmm. So the brain is the thing generating all of these thoughts and feelings and worries and whatnot, likely based on conditioning or prior experience or, or whatever. 
But then we want to distinguish that from mind, which is basically this super meta awareness that observes what's going on, but doesn't necessarily say, uh, agree with mm-hmm. what you're thinking and, and knows that you as whatever your essence is, is more than what the brain is generating. Does that make sense? It sure does. And you talk a bit about something you call deceptive brain messages. Is that right. sort of tied into what you're talking about? Yeah, deceptive brain messages basically is the uh, the O of the OCD. <laughs> um, we just, I just wanted to expand it beyond OCD for the purposes of the book. But I mean, if you look at the definition of of how we define deceptive brain message, it it literally pretty much is um, part of OCD. So it's any thought, feeling, urge, impulse, right? That the way we define it is that it takes you away from your true self, who you really are in this world. When you take away the expectations and the rules and the, all of that stuff, right? The, the true self is the, the goals and aspirations, uh, how you want to be in this world without those things. So, mm-hmm. so for me, deceptive brain message certainly is urges, impulses, all of that. I just don't want to discount that some of the deceptive brain messages aren't even coming from you. Yeah, I, I got it. I think I understand what you're talking about. So there's yeah. sort of societal messages that people internalize People grow up uh, seeing ads about what girls look like, what boys do, uh, messages they get from peers, uh, information they get from their parents about what their expectations of them should be. And pretty soon a person is developing thoughts about how they're existing in the world that are just taken from all these other places besides from within themselves. Exactly. I would say that just comes up a lot. Like that's the bread and butter for therapists, right? Yeah, um, exactly. You know, managing to help help people to get who they want to be, what's really important to them, and to try to weed out and discard all of these messages they've gotten from society that's just really not helping them be fulfilled and be comfortable in the world. Right, exactly. And so that's, that's why we call it deceptive brain messages and why we wanted to expand it just from obsession, because obsession is kind of limited. The reason we want to do that is so that when you get further into how we approach it, you're able to separate your sense of self from these messages, because that it's really that fusion that causes so many problems, like you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. You also talk a bit about uncomfortable sensations. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about how that plays a role in the treatment. You know, uncomfortable sensations is basic. I mean, it can be the anxiety, but it also can just be an obsessive kind of urge feeling itself, right? You you may not track so-and-so looked at me kind of funny, and now I've got this weird feeling in my belly, right? That may be the uncomfortable sensation. We'll call it obsessive. deceptive brain message, whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call it, that is then going to cause the person to go do something in terms of a compulsion, 
Maybe they're going to check, oh, is Joe, are you mad at me? Or, oh, I need to avoid Joe for the rest of today, or I need to go eat an ice cream or, or whatever. So the, the emotional sensations are, we're just trying to get people to understand all the different ways that a deceptive brain message can kind of show up, how to then deal with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So basically a person can have a sensation inside their body, could even be a physical sensation experience that my stomach feels upset, I'm getting a headache, my heart is beating kind of fast, or anything that goes with any kind of an emotion a person might have. And that Mm -hmm. in and of itself to some people could be a validation of some truth about something that's going on that might not actually be there. Right. And then they may go and, and do a compulsion or do a behavior that ultimately, unfortunately, reinforces that. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if you ever use the term emotional reasoning. That's something Mm -hmm. that I use a fair amount in my practice. And it kind of reminds me a little bit about what you're talking about. The idea that if I feel something, that feeling in and of itself must be a validation that the feeling is true. If I'm feeling guilty, well, I must be guilty of the thing that I'm feeling guilty about. Otherwise, why would I be feeling guilty about it? Right. So the book, there's a four-step solution. I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us a bit of a overview on what these four steps are and how they work. Sure. So, you know, the four steps, like I said, were originally developed by um, Dr. Jeff Schwartz mm-hmm. for OCD. We changed them from brain lock, the terminology, we changed it to make it more inclusive. So if you look at brain lock and you look at you are not your brain, a couple of the terms are different, but the, the idea, like I said, is to help you identify what's happening and then have a different perspective toward it. And then use that to change your brain. I'll give you the four steps, but then I also want to give you a little bit of the science just so you understand why it's constructed this way. So the four steps themselves, the the first one is relabel. That's what we were talking about before with Matt Lieberman stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're just calling it what it is. You're just identifying the deceptive brain message or the uncomfortable sensation or whatever. You're just calling it out. And it doesn't have to be the perfect word. I mean, people sometimes get really caught up on this. And I had one person that I said, like, let's just call it blue. Whenever it comes up, just say blue, (laughs) right? Right. It doesn't matter. We just need Mm -hmm. the quick recognition. Relabel is about awareness. You cannot change what you cannot see. We got to get you to the point where you can relabel it. Mm -hmm. Quick, easy, one word, mental note, just like you do in meditation. Step two is reframe. In the old version, it was reattribute. And we we changed it to reframe for a variety of reasons. Um, Some of it based on James Gross's work and some other things. The idea being that you need to change your perception of the importance of what you are thinking or feeling of that deceptive brain message, right? And the reason that's important is that's how you begin to separate your sense of self from these deceptive brain messages. And the more you're able to do that, the more you're able to discard the deceptive brain messages Mm -hmm. faster. Mm -hmm. So you relabel, you reframe. This isn't me. This is OCD. This is just a thought my brain is generating. This is a false message, you know, whatever. And and there are many different ways you can reframe. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to refocus. And the idea with refocus is to change 
your focus of attention. And, and so this is where some of the science comes in. So the reason you want to do this is that what we focus on in terms of attention is what we are training the brain is important. Mm. It has to do with neuroplasticity, which is, you know, re rewiring the brain. And it has to do with something called attention density. The idea is that neurons that fire together, wire together. And when they do that over and over and over, they create a very strong path in the brain. You know, think about going from like a country lane to a six lane superhighway. Mm -hmm. The thing that glues that together, the thing that keeps those neurons in that activated state to wire together is your attention. Mm -hmm. So if you repetitively focus on a specific compulsion, you are wiring it stronger and stronger into the brain. Interesting. Right? So this is what you're talking about, about the neuroplasticity. We're actually changing the brain pathways in terms of the way a person thinks and experiences it. Right. And yeah. Or, or the routines. Like, so I can train my brain that when I, so <laughs> this actually happened when I was um, working on the book, but so mm -hmm. any habit you can train into the brain um, if you just keep doing it over and over. Right. So I can train my brain that when I get stressed out, I go and eat a chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. Or I can train my brain when I get stressed out, I go for a walk, right? But whichever one of those I do over and over and over by focus of my attention on that behavior, that brain pathway gets stronger mm -hmm. and more well-worn. Got it. So with refocusing, we're not simply talking about distraction. We're talking about refocusing in on a specific behavior that is going to replace the one that wasn't working for us. Yeah. Or just whatever is healthy, whatever is productive for you. So it doesn't like, I don't, I don't want people to think rigidly, like I always have to go mm -hmm. call okay. my friend or something. It can be anything, but the idea being you want to break the, the one habit that you keep doing over and over. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the only way you can get your brain to change is by changing that focus of attention got it over so and over and over it could be if this happens what i'm going to do instead is change my focus and do something different and that different thing could be any one of these five things that are going to be my go-to things so that exactly. i've got some idea where to what to go and do and i'm not floundering trying to figure it out when i'm dealing with it exactly so like having you know uh, i forget what we call them in the book but essentially a list of different activities, refocus mm -hmm. activities is, is what we recommend, you know, cause you're going to be in different places at different times. So it doesn't, you don't want it to be based solely on one kind of circumstance. Got it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's helpful to have a repertoire of different kinds of things to go to if one needs to. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was one more in the, that was step three. So what's step four? So step four is revalue. And this one you know, I usually have people just work on step one through three for a while because there's a lot of repetition that has to happen with this approach. But step four, it, it's called revalue and it it's progressive mindfulness. It's it's experiential. Like people look at it and they think two step two and step four are essentially the same thing, mm -hmm. but they're not because with revalue, 
you, it's just like almost automatic that you see that this is, this just isn't important. This just mm-hmm. isn't, this isn't a big deal. Whatever this thing is that has kind of run through my brain, this has no value. It's not important. In step two, reframe, you're trying to change your relationship to the, the thing that's happening, your way of thinking. And in step four, you're just saying like, ah, this doesn't even matter. Yeah. And it just takes time. But like I said, it's very experiential. So it's hard to describe in, in certain ways, but it's, it's kind of the end result. Yeah, I think I understand what you're getting at with that. I know in my work, when I do uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with patients, I have a step that I like to do with people examining whether or not the thoughts that they're experiencing are functional. That's the Mm. word I use Mm -hmm. is functional. And so we go through and we ask, like, is this thought really functional for you, whether it's rational or not? And if not, what would be a more functional thought for you to be? So right. if the thought was, well, I totally screwed up on whatever it is I was doing, and that's rationally true, is it really functional to be spending your time thinking about how badly you did because it already right. happened? And it's really not helping you to beat up on yourself for this thing that, that's happened in the past. How can I move forward with a new set of thought and a new approach to it that will help me achieve my goals better? So yeah. And, is it and kind of along a, those lines, what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. No, that, okay. that's, it's a perfect way to describe it. Yep. So, yeah, I think those are very good descriptions of the four steps. Is there anything else about those that you'd like to say? Of course, people, I encourage people to get your book because they, you go into great detail with all of this stuff. And it's a wonderful book. I've got it right here with me today. Uh, but I wonder if there's anything else specifically you think would be helpful yeah, I mean, I, I think the main thing for people to understand about OCD is that it takes time mm-hmm. and don't get discouraged. You're, you're, you're fighting some, some tough brain patterns and, and chemistry and, and it can change. The thing we always like to tell people, and we didn't quite uh, talk about this yet, but you can't stop a thought from coming. You cannot mm-hmm. stop an obsession it's not possible. It's going to pop up if it's going to pop up, but you can stop the compulsion. You can work on that side of the equation, Mm -hmm. right? A couple of things comes out of that. Number one, you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to have anxiety when you don't do the compulsion. That's okay. Nothing terrible is going to happen, but you have to have the faith that if you keep working either with the four steps or, or whatever modality you use for OCD, you're going to feel uncomfortable, but it's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't want to try to mitigate or in any way, get rid of that anxiety. You just mm-hmm. let it be there. And as best you can, don't put a lot of emphasis on it, you know, to the extent that you can. Yeah. So that's why the four steps it's working on the, the quote unquote compulsion side. It's certainly working on the obsessive side as well. But again, if you don't have awareness, you can't do anything. The reframe really helps with the um, change of perspective, CBT. And the refocus, again, allow the sensations to be there, but refocus. And then it's going to come right back. Do the, th- the three, four steps again. And then it's yeah. going to come right back, do it again. And it, it takes time and effort. Don't be discouraged. 
And just remember, just like learning how to ride a bike, right? You have to engage that frontal lobe. The four steps helps you do that. Mm -hmm. So does that... I think that's a really, really good point. And I think that's an important thing to remember that the one thing we don't have control over is thoughts popping into our head. And that can be very frustrating for people. Like, why do I keep getting this thought? I don't want to have this thought. I don't like to have this thought, right? Right. Like somebody with OCD or any anxiety disorder isn't sitting there saying, oh, today I think I'd like to think about how scary it would be to go in that elevator. Uh, It's not something anybody enjoys having. And the second thing I want to add on to what you're saying is uh, anxiety sucks kind of, and it's hard, hard work. Anxiety work is hard work because anxiety is so uncomfortable for people. Right. But like you said, I think if, if, if people can just approach it, follow the steps and have faith that over time things get better, it's just, you just need to stick through it, that these techniques actually really work very effectively. Yeah. So one other thing I want to ask you about, and again, I guess I should do a disclaimer here that any thing we talk about having to do with medications and and medical stuff is uh, just for information only. And for your particular situation, if you're listening, you should consult with your medical provider about your particular situation and whether or not medications or any other kind of medical intervention would be right for you because everybody's different. Right. But with that said, I'm just curious as a psychiatrist, where do medications tend to fit in to the treatment of OCD? You obviously are very involved with therapeutic interventions with OCD, which is, it's great to see a psychiatrist so excited about that. But how about the medication side of things? Well, I, you know, I tell folks, everyone I work with, I tell them the same thing, which is medications should be considered when you're not able to function the way you want in the world. Right. So if you're in therapy and you're learning all these great coping skills, but you can't use them, for whatever reason, maybe you need medicine. Mm -hmm. If your OCD is so strong that you can't differentiate that it's OCD, probably need medicine. Those are my benchmarks. Um, by and large, I, you know, I, like I said, I try whenever possible to not use medication, but there are Mm -hmm. certainly times when they're needed and they can be very helpful in those situations. Um, I was going to say, do you typically try to start your treatment with OCD and anxiety disorders without the medications and see how things go? And then the medications are added later. If a person needs a little extra help, um, how how do you typically assess when to bring the medications into the mix? Or is that totally individualized? Well, it's definitely individualized, but it's, it's, again, it's based on the functioning. So if you're able to go to work and you're, you're not at risk of getting fired and you're not having, you know, difficulties at home, or you're not taking three hours to um, drive home because you got to drive around to make sure you haven't like hit someone or whatever, right? If it's not super severe uh, impairing, then you can certainly start with therapy and, and see how it goes. And, and I find more and more people want to do that. So it's certainly worth a try. That being said, 
if you have those more severe symptoms, you're probably not going to be able to use CBT or the four steps or anything else effectively. And then it just becomes a very frustrating experience for you. It's just a conversation that you really have at the beginning of like, okay, where are you at in terms of functioning? What are your goals? And how well do we think this can be accomplished with therapy versus medicine would be indicated at that point? Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes perfect sense. So I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts or comments on the subject before we end our show today. You know, I, I think it's mostly what I've said before, which is just this can get better. And the more you're able to see and separate out deceptive brain messages, OCD thinking from who you are, and from what your current and future will be, that's really my hope for folks is, is that they can, they can kind of do that and just understand that just because you think a certain way right now doesn't mean that it's accurate or true or anything like that. It really could be that the OCD or, or whatever is uh, impairing your perspective and that over time, those kinds of things can change. So I would say that. And then the other thing is I always plug meditation. Um, mm -hmm. as All the mindfulness stuff is really helpful. Yeah. Again, because it, it, the way I describe it to patients, it's a, it's a mental gym for me. So, you know, I, I just stick with very basic Vipassana kind of breath mm -hmm. as anchor meditation. So just to describe briefly, folks are probably familiar, but you focus just on your breath, the air coming in and out of your nose, the back of your throat, mm -hmm. rise and fall of your chest, whatever it is. You pick that as an anchor and then you just focus on breath. And inevitably the brain will pull you away with a thought, a feeling, urge, worry, whatever. And you just make that mental note, thinking, worrying, blue, whatever. You come back to your breath. And mm -hmm. then you, it'll pull you off again. You come back to your breath, pulls you off again, come back to your breath. So the, the, the gym is just that practice of refocusing. When you get pulled off and you make that mental note, that's relabeling. You don't necessarily do the reframe, but you might, but then you learn how to refocus your attention. You know, even if people aren't using the four steps, but especially if they are, meditation can be a great adjunct because it's it's a place where you can practice when you're not triggered, when you're not in the OCD state. Becky, this has been a super interesting and informative conversation. I really appreciate you coming and talking with me today. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.